Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to Ben's. Uh, It's uh, lovely to have you with us this morning. Do turn back to Acts chapter 15. Uh, We're carrying on with our series looking at the uh, book of Acts together. Um, If you're a scribbler, and uh, and I hope that you are, there's a handout uh, in your sort of little pack of stuff that might just help you to follow along where we're going. And um, I'm going to pray for the Lord's help as we come to look at this, his word together. Our Lord God, as we come to this passage, we pray that your word would be our guide your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and your glory, our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Well, I wonder if you've ever read anything that you thought was unrealistically optimistic. Unrealistically optimistic. Um, Not long before our eldest child, Tom, was born, um, I was given a book about being a new father to read. And if you're a parent here, you'll know the sort of literature I'm talking about. It had, um, I think, five big principles, where if you do those five principles, then you can be guaranteed that your child will sleep like clockwork, eat whenever they're supposed to, and never cry or be dissatisfied or anything like that. It was the sort of book that was full of glossy pictures of attractive young couples who didn't even look that tired, and small babies who were either sleeping or smiling. And, um, and of course, um, when, um, when children came along, we realized that parenthood is rather more messy and more complicated than that. And even if... Um, uh, even if you've never had children, um, whether it's the, um, the advert in the estate agent, the, um, the flat that's being described to you as a, a, as a uni house next year, or the, um, the thing in the travel agent's brochure that sounds fantastic, I guess we know what it is to read something that seems unrealistically optimistic compared to real life. And you know, one of the things that I love about reading the Bible is that it's never unrealistically optimistic. It's just very real what's portrayed in the scriptures. Um, I don't know about you, my experience of seeking to live for Jesus and to share the, the great news that Jesus is Lord and can rescue us, can forgive us, and my experience of that is that it is often messy, complicated. There are wisdom calls needed I think of um, a friend who um, got involved in the Christian Union where she worked, and um, they were meeting regularly to encourage one another to be speaking of Jesus to the people they worked with, and yet quite often the Christians found it hard to agree on things. Sometimes it felt like more of a discouragement to go than an encouragement. I think of another friend who talked about how he wants to... um, share the gospel with his neighbours, and yet when they get talking, somehow they, they always seem to get distracted into debates about politics or different styles of church or, or anything other than Jesus, really. And it can feel messy and complicated, can't it? And the wonderful thing about the Bible is that it doesn't present us with an unrealistically optimistic picture of what it will be like to live for Jesus and to speak for him. Uh, Take our passage this morning, for example. Now, um, if you were with us last week, Acts 15 is one of the high points of the book of Acts. You have this amazing council where Christians from all the churches gather together. Um, There are some, um, some false teachers who say that in order to be a Christian, you need more than just faith in Jesus 
as your Lord and your Savior. You also need qualifications of your own. You need to be circumcised and to, um, to obey the Old Testament rituals. And in Acts 15, the church has declared unequivocally, no, Jesus is enough. It's a moment of great unity and joy as the church gathers around the gospel. They write a letter to be sent out to all of the churches, making it clear that Jesus is the only way that we can be saved and that Jesus' sacrifice is enough. And then as Paul and Barnabas go out to take that letter, (laughs) well, we meet mess, don't we? I mean, this is a passage full of shocks and surprises. Paul and Barnabas have such a strong disagreement that in 15 verse 39, they part company from one another. And then as we follow Paul to Derby and Lystra, we meet Timothy, one of his key colleagues. Paul is literally carrying a letter that says you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. And the first thing that Paul does is have Timothy circumcised. I mean, what is going on? It is messy and complicated in this passage. Now, why does Luke record these details for us? Well, have a look at 16 verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. It's one of the little summary sentences that Luke scatters throughout the book of Acts to show us that Jesus Christ is growing his church. And I take it that here Luke records the details to show us in an unvarnished, warts and all kind of way that the ministry and mission of the gospel will be messy and complicated But even in spite of that, Jesus Christ will continue to grow his church. Even in the midst of the mess of this passage, 16 verse 5, the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. So two things to see then. Firstly, Jesus Christ will grow his church despite division. Have a look down at verse 36 with me. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now just notice here, Paul and Barnabas, they're not the sort of one visit and they're gone evangelists that we often think they are. Paul's ministry is one of patiently going back to places and telling them the gospel again and again. That's true for most of us, isn't it? Most of our evangelism isn't one-hit wonder, but patiently telling people the same glorious truth about Jesus again and again. But it's a shock, isn't it? In verse 39, despite their unity in the gospel and their common plan, verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. You know, and it should be a shock to us. If you've been reading through the book of Acts, you'll know that Paul and Barnabas go back a long way. We're told that they're both godly men, and Barnabas' name literally means son of encouragement, and he's been that to Paul. When Paul was first converted in Acts chapter 9 from being an enemy of the church, Barnabas was the only one who trusted him enough to bring him to the other leaders of the church. In Acts 9. So they go back a long way. The Holy Spirit had commissioned these two men to go on that first missionary journey throughout Europe. And Paul and Barnabas have preached the gospel in places together. They've stood shoulder to shoulder. They've suffered together. In Acts 14, we've read that they were beaten up, stoned, and thrown out of town together. They've been friends that you would describe as closer than a brother. 
Um, In Acts 15, they stood together and contended for the truth of the gospel in the council. And so it's a shock to us to read that they disagreed with one another so strongly, so heatedly, that they have to separate from one another. Notice that um, this is not a disagreement over the meaning of the gospel. It's clear in Acts 15 at the beginning of that chapter that they are together on the gospel. No, um, Jesus um, told his followers that there would be false teachers like wolves in sheep's clothing who come in and teach different things about him, a different gospel, and that Christians must stand up for the truth in that sort of situation. But that's not the situation here, is it? No, two brothers who see eye to eye on the truth about Jesus. Neither are they divided over something trivial, This is not a debate over the color of the church carpets or um, what we serve with coffee after the service. You know, should it be biscuits or cake or nothing at all? Um, Sadly, I've known Christians who've had heated disagreements over issues like that. And I think to them we want to say, remember what's really important and, and maybe grow up a little bit. But it's not a debate about trivia here. Now have a look down at verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. It's a significant wisdom call here, isn't it? On that first missionary journey, three guys had set out with little money and no fixed place to stay, and they'd gone to new places to tell them about Jesus, And on the first leg of that journey, one of those three men had turned back and left them in the lurch. We're not told why, but that must have been costly for Paul and Barnabas. It must have been hard. And the issue here is, what do you do with the Christian leader who has failed in a significant way? Should they be restored to that position? If so, when should they be restored? How do you decide? It's a really difficult issue. I was talking to someone after the 9.15 who's um, seen a a really similar issue to this playing out in a local church, and it's it's hard. Uh, We had something of a discussion as a staff team about who's right in this debate and if we can even know, and um, I just don't think it's particularly clear in this passage, is it? I mean, we follow Paul from here for the rest of Acts, but it's not clearly signaled who's right. It's a wisdom call, it's a difficult one, and it's one they cannot see eye to eye on. So why does Luke record it for us? Well, I take it it's so that when the big surprise like this happens, we're not surprised. Because we know that from the earliest days of the church, even those who love Jesus and agree on the gospel will sometimes sharply disagree with one another over these difficult wisdom calls. In a world where people are fallen and finite, we're not to be surprised when Christians can't always see eye to eye, even if they both passionately believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not to be distressed or downhearted or or utterly blown off course by this. I still remember the first time that I saw something like this play out in a Christian church. Two men that I respected enormously who'd both had a huge impact on me as a Christian, and yet over a wisdom call about what the church should do, they simply could not agree with one another. And eventually one of them felt that he had to leave. 
Now, they were godly men. I don't remember anyone ever saying anything untrue or unkind about the other person. But in a world where people are fallen and finite, this side of the return of Jesus and the perfection of believers, there will be these disagreements. And you see, Luke um, tells us, um, not so that we'll celebrate them, not so that we won't feel heavy-hearted about them, but so that we won't be blown off course from doing the work of the gospel and telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ will continue to grow his church even in spite of division. You know, it does make us feel downhearted, but we can have confidence in him. Just have a look down at verse 39 with me. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. You see, in this situation, they're not, um, they're not so gutted and downhearted that their mouths are closed, and they don't give themselves to being defensive. You know the sort of thing. All our energy goes onto social media to prove that we're right. They don't give themselves to that, but get on with the work of the gospel, and Jesus grows his kingdom as the churches are strengthened. And we need this confidence, don't we? When we see churches disagree, when we see individual Christians who love Jesus unable to stand side by side for whatever reason, it can just suck the life out of us, can't it? We need to know that Jesus will continue to grow his church wherever Christians put the gospel first. It might be in unexpected ways, but we can have confidence in him. That's what Luke wants us to know. But then secondly, notice at the beginning of chapter 16 that Christ will grow his church when Christians are not distracted. Christ will grow his church when Christians are not distracted. Look down at verse one with me. Um, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was Jewish and a believer but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, if you've been reading Acts so far, that is a bombshell, isn't it? I mean, that's huge. He's literally carrying a letter that says that you don't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. And we meet Timothy, who will be a colleague for the rest of Acts, and the first thing he does is have him circumcised. More than that, if you've ever read Paul's letters you will know that sometimes Paul stood firm and said absolutely not to having colleagues circumcised. You know, in Galatians 2, Paul talks about his colleague Titus. He says that some people insisted that he be circumcised, and he says this, we did not give in to them for a moment. More than that, he says, let them be cursed for teaching a different gospel to the one that I taught. So sometimes Paul will stand pretty strongly on this issue. So what's going on here? Well, picture two colleagues of Paul, uh, if you will. Um, You've got Titus on the one hand. So Titus is not Jewish. He's a Gentile. And someone rocks up in the church and says, well, the thing is, just trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection is not enough. Titus, you need some qualifications of your own. 
you'd better get circumcised or you'll never be a real Christian. And when Paul hears that, he says, by no means. Let them be cursed for even suggesting such a thing and holding to it. But here's Timothy. Now, Timothy is half Jewish, and, um, uh, and we're told that, aren't we, in verse 1, that he's half Greek and half Jewish. And so from the perspective of the first century synagogue, he's a Jew, but he's not been circumcised, so he's not an observant Jew. And so now imagine Paul and Timothy rock up at the synagogue in Derby or Lystra, and when they get to the door, the, um, the guy on the door says, Ah, Paul, Paul, I know, you're a rabbi. We know that you're observant. Why don't you come in and tell us about this Jesus that you've been preaching about? Oh, actually, hold on. Who's that with you? Is that Timothy? Well, we've heard of him. He's Jewish, but but he's not observant. I'm sorry, we don't let people like that come in here. And the door of opportunity for the gospel quite literally closes in their face. (laughs) They were being invited in to speak about Jesus. But then there's this distraction and the door is closed. And you see, in that situation, where there's no threat to the gospel, there's no suggestion Timothy must be circumcised to become a Christian, where the gospel is clear, Paul is willing to be totally flexible and pragmatic. You know, if it gets, if it gets us in, if it, if it removes the distraction, well, Timothy gets circumcised. <laughs> Talk about a costly and painful decision for the sake of the gospel. But it's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians when he says, to the Jew I became like a Jew, and to the Gentile I was like a Gentile, that in any way people might be saved. You see, Christ will grow his church when Christians are not distracted. When we're clear on the central truths of the gospel, there is an amazing freedom and flexibility to do what will help people to hear about Jesus. Sadly, I was on a placement some years ago at a church where there was not clear teaching on the gospel and the Bible wasn't really taught. And um, it was amazing. It was like visiting a museum. Nothing in that church had changed for probably a 100 years. They were still running all the same groups and activities. They were still singing exactly the same hymns. Nothing had changed because people weren't clear on what really mattered And if you're not clear on what really matters, well, you can never be flexible with anything, can you? Because what if that's one of the things that really matters? So now visit a church that's clear on the gospel and see the wonderful freedom that we have to change around the pragmatics. Actually, Paul was infusing this week, our vicar, about those within the church family who have been very tolerant of us changing our dress code. No robes, no clerical collars here on a Sunday. You've probably noticed that unless... um, you know, unless you're very short-sighted or something like that. And um, I know that will be hard for some of you here, and yet Paul was praising God for those who find that hard, and maybe they'd prefer it to be different. But to help others hear about Jesus, they're, they're willing to put up with um, me wearing a dodgy tie instead of a clerical collar. But I think the question is, the question that's challenged me this week is, are we even asking the question You know, it might seem obvious to us as we think about a mission partner going to another culture overseas that they would remove any cultural distractions. But the book of Acts is quite clear that you and me as ordinary Christians are missionaries in our workplace and our neighborhood and with our friends and colleagues. And do we even ask the question, 
if there are things we're doing that distract from the gospel. Uh, a few years ago, um, I was um, going out with a group of friends. We were handing out flyers to invite people to our church carol service in local pubs. And some of you will know that I have the misfortune to support Arsenal Football Club. So I had um, I'd thrown my Arsenal scarf on purely to keep warm as we went from pub to pub in midwinter. And I, I very vividly remember a lad in one of the pubs when I tried to hand him a flyer, taking one look at my scarf and saying, I'll not take that from you. Thank you very much. And now I know what you're thinking. That is a massive overreaction to an Arsenal... Well, actually, maybe you're thinking it's a perfectly appropriate reaction to an Arsenal scarf. Um, But, um, look, the choice of what scarf to wear is a relatively uncostly decision compared to being circumcised, isn't it? I'm not saying that had I worn a different scarf, he would have come to the service and become a Christian. But that scarf blocked the opportunity to even invite him from ever happening. And thinking carefully about what I wear would be a pretty small price to pay for someone to be saved from hell for eternal life in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we even ask the question, what will distract people from hearing about Jesus from us. Look, there are some issues in the Christian life that we need to stand firm on. There are some that fall into the, um, the Paul and Titus category. You know, if someone asks about, I don't know, um, euthanasia or same-sex marriage or, um, uh, or, or any number of issues, what they're really asking about is, does the gospel include repentance? And so lovingly and graciously, we need to be firm and clear on those issues But when we're clear on the gospel, there are a million things where we're set free to be flexible and to say, what will not distract this person from hearing about Jesus? A friend from the church family, um, I don't think I can see her here this morning, so um, apologies if you're here anyway, um, works works in an office where um, most of the people who work there are vegans. Now, the Bible's quite clear that as a Christian, you are free to eat meat if you choose to. But she thinks very carefully about the food that she brings into work because she doesn't want the conversation to always be about that. She doesn't want it to be a distraction from promoting Jesus in her workplace. I mean, do we even think like that? As a Christian, you're free to have a battered Bible and keep it on the floor in meetings. But, you know, if you go to an evangelistic meeting where there's a Muslim friend there, they will find that massively distracting And so you might choose to simply put your Bible in in a different place. You're free to do differently, but you don't want it to be a distraction. I'd appeal to you never to put your Bible on the floor just in case for that reason. Hey, I thought about whether I should really say this, but you know, Paul's away in Jerusalem, so uh, I've got at least a week of grace before I get in trouble, so I'm just going to say it. Your political views could make it harder for someone to hear about Jesus from you. I'm not saying that as a Christian you shouldn't have strong political views, and I'm not saying you shouldn't talk about them with people, but the way that you talk about them is either going to make it easier or harder to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that's been true for, for more than one friend of mine. Again, I'm not saying don't talk about politics, that terrible British thing that we don't talk about religion or politics, but the way that you communicate yourself 
will either make it easier for people to hear about Jesus from you or distract them. I wonder what are the distractions that we can just move out of the way, even at cost to ourselves. When we're clear about the gospel, we're free to be flexible on these things. And here's the thing, have confidence. Even when it feels hard and messy and actually people feel, um, it feels like people get distracted into all sorts of other things. Christ will grow his church where we don't allow ourselves to be distracted from speaking about Jesus. 16 verse five, the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. It can feel messy. It can feel um, a lot harder than just a handbook on how to do evangelism or something like that. But where we stick with Jesus and keep speaking about him, even where there's division or distraction, we can have a realistic optimism because Christ will grow his church. Amen. Let me pray. Our Lord God, as we face a task unfinished, we pray that you would make us those with a humble confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is on heaven's throne and will grow his church as we seek to put the gospel first, despite division, despite distraction. Pray that that might be so for us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.